The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. My title this morning is Hell No. All right, and that's clickbait, obviously. I want to get people to listen to this. So, um, But let me ask you this. What comes to your mind when you hear the word hell? Fire, okay. When you hear or read hell, I think all kinds of ideas come to your mind, right? And when we think of the abode of the condemned souls, and we think of the devil, uh, we think of a place of eternal fiery punishment for the wicked after they die presided over by Satan. You know, we may think of a place of fire and brimstone where the damned undergo physical torment eternally. The dictionary says this, Hell is a place regarded in various religions as a spiritual realm of evil and suffering, often traditionally depicted as a place of perpetual fire beneath the earth where the wicked are punished after death. We often use statements like, that sickness was hell, or I'm going through hell. What do we mean by that? Well, that expression reflects our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term of the worst possible human experience. Things are just really bad, right? There's a country song, any of you listen to country? Okay, country song by Rodney Atkins called, If You're Going Through Hell. The chorus says this, if you're going through hell, keep on going. Don't slow down. If you're scared, don't show it. You might get out before the devil even knows you're there. Uh, These lyrics reflect the common view, I think, of hell. It's not a good experience, but it's also the devil's there and he's kind of running the place, right? He's kind of ruling over, he's presiding over hell. The 14th century Italian poet Dante Alighieri wrote the Divine Comedy with the idea that sinners are tortured in ways that represent ultimate justice for their sins. Have you ever heard the expression, cold as hell? Where did that come from? I mean, we got flames. How do you get, uh, it sounds kind of like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Well, Not really if you've read Dante, okay? Because he taught that the lowest level of hell was reserved for the worst of sinners, and it was freezing cold. Hence, cold as hell, all right? I don't know if that's just, uh, you know, American euphemism, or if that came from Dante, but that's what he does teach. In an article entitled, What is Hell?, Published on June 20th, 2014, R.C. Sproul writes, There is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. It is so unpopular with us that few would give credence to it at all, except that it comes from the teaching of Christ Himself. Alright, I'm going to challenge Sproul here. Because I'm going to say, first of all, hell is not a biblical concept. And secondly, I'm going to say, Christ never taught on hell. All right? I used to hear people say, 
Christ taught more on hell than He did on heaven. Christ taught more on hell than He did on anything else. Christ never taught on hell. Alright? Now just don't turn me off yet. Got to stay to the end, okay? We're going to look at Christ's teaching. And we're going to see if in fact He did teach on that. But before we look at the teaching of Christ, let's start at the beginning. Okay, let's look at the Tanakh and see what we can learn about hell from the Tanakh. But first, let me say this. Believers, we have to test everything we believe by the text. You understand what I'm saying? It's got to be in the Bible. The beliefs you hold must come from the text. And we must be open to allowing the text to shatter our false ideas. Believer, I submit to you that we believe a lot of things that the Bible doesn't talk about at all. We've heard them all our lives. And so we believe them. And we've never really seen it. Or maybe we've seen something that could kind of back that up. Now, you may be surprised to learn that the word hell is nowhere found in the Bible in the original translations, in the original language. And if you see hell in your Bible, it's a bad translation. It's just a bad translation. And we'll, we'll look at that here. In the King James Version, who is famous for this, hell is mentioned 54 times. Listen, people, there's no such thing. But it's mentioned 54 times in the King James Bible. And as I said, when you read the word hell in the King James Bible, you think of fire, torture, eternal damnation. Forever. Hell is found 31 times in the King James Old Testament, where it is translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. Okay? For example, let's look at Psalm 9.17. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Oh, that doesn't sound good, right? And all the nations that forget God. Alright, here the word hell is mistranslated from the Hebrew Sheol. Let's look at the ESV. The wicked shall return to Sheol. You get a kind of a different picture between those two translations? Well, the word here, return, is from the Hebrew word shov, which means to turn back, to return. So, Psalm, 90, Psalm 9.17 could be translated this way. The wicked will return to the grave. Alright, now look at those two and compare that. The wicked shall be turned into hell. We get all these ideas of all oh, evil, burning, torture, and then you read it in a literal language, the wicked shall return to the grave. From dust you were, from dust you shall return. That gives you a whole different picture, right? If you were to look at every use of Sheol in the Tanakh, here's what you would find. I'm going to go give you kind of a general overview. This is really important because the King James translates this hell, all right? Sheol refers to a place in the depths of the earth. The expression go down or brought down is used 20 times in connection with Sheol. 
The depths of Sheol are mentioned six times. Four times Sheol is described as the furthest point from heaven. Often Sheol is parallel with the pit. Nine times it is parallel with death. Sheol is described in terms of overwhelming floods, water, or waves. Sometimes Sheol is pictured as a hunter setting snares for its victim, binding them with cords, snatching them from the land of the living. Sheol is a prison with bars. It's a place of no return. People at times go to Sheol alive. Know who I'm talking about there? Korah. Remember when Korah withstood Moses? The ground opened up, boom, swallowed him, closed right back up. Where'd he go? That's an instant burial, people. Okay? Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. But nowhere, nowhere do we see Sheol used as a place of torment. Now, this is the Hebrew Bible. And what you have to understand is the New Testament writers got their concepts, their thoughts from their understanding of the Tanakh. So we look in the Tanakh, we never get the traditional view of hell. It just isn't there. Let's look at some verses in the Tanakh that talk about the end of the wicked. All right, because what happens? I mean, we want to know what does it say about the wicked? Of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like a green herb. So, what happens to evildoers and wrongdoers? They just fade, they wither like the grass. Psalm 37, 9 and 10. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. They just, they're gone. 37.20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of Yahweh are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. Now the word perish here is the Hebrew word avad. And Brown, Driver, and Briggs' definition is to perish, to vanish, to go astray, be destroyed, die, be exterminated. And the word vanish here is from the Hebrew kalah, which means, again, according to Brown, Driver, Briggs' definition, means to accomplish, to cease, to consume, to end, to fail, to finish. You see any hint of eternal conscious torment in these verses? Well, not yet we haven't. Okay, let's keep looking. Psalm 37, 35, and 36. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Now, notice that the wicked passed away and was no more. The words no more are from the Hebrew ayin, which is from a primitive root meaning to be nothing or to not exist. He just didn't exist anymore. The psalmist doesn't say they pass away and are tormented throughout eternity. Let's keep going. Job 4, 8 and 9. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of His anger, they're consumed. So Job said, those people, the wicked, they perish, they're consumed, they're gone. 
Speaking of the wicked, Job says, He will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? Now, the word dung here is the Hebrew word galel. You know what galel means? Hang on. Dung. (laughs) Okay, that's what it means, dung. So guess what? He's going to perish just like his dung. He's gone. All right? Psalm 73, 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. He puts an end to the unfaithful. They are dead. They will not live. This is Isaiah. Let me ask you, what was the hope of Israel? The resurrection. He said they're dead. They're not going to live. They are shades. They will not arise. So they don't get, they're not going to get the hope of Israel, all right? To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. So they're not going to arise. They're going to be destroyed. That's what the Tanakh gives us as far as the afterlife and people who don't know God. Psalm 58.8 says, Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Is that a vivid picture? You ever poured salt on a snail? It's ugly, okay? Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. They dissolve. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish from before God. All right, now listen. We don't obviously not going to run through all of them, okay? But let me tell you this. There are at least 70 metaphors or similes of what the end of the wicked will be like in the Tanakh. What do these pictures tell us? Will reality resemble the picture? These pictures he's given us of perish and dissolving and being no more. If the wicked are to be eternally tormented in flames, shouldn't the picture somehow reflect that? Shouldn't some pictures be like, the wicked shall be like a skewer roasting over the fire or a boiling in a cauldron of oil. You don't get any of that. Do you see eternal conscious torment even hinted at in any of these pictures? Now that's significant to me. This is the first three quarters of the Bible. This is what the Hebrews understood. They didn't have a picture of people being tormented after death. And here's what you have to understand. Virtually every important doctrine, virtually every doctrine we have, has its roots in the Tanakh. And is taught in typology or symbols or didactically there. So where is this torment taught in symbols? Was the Lamb of the Exodus tortured forever after it was slain? Were any of the sacrifices tortured? No. The sacrifices were eventually turned to ashes. They were put on fire, and boom, they were gone. Now, the interpreter's dictionary of the Bible comments this, Nowhere in the Old Testament is the abode of the dead regarded as a place of punishment or torment. The concept of an infernal hell developed in Israel only during the Hellenistic period. 
Now that's important, and we're going to talk about the Hellenistic period and their views changing in a few weeks here. But nowhere in the Tanakh is the abode of the dead regarded as a place of punishment and torment. So that's kind of strange, isn't it? We don't have any of that. Nothing. So why did the King James translators translate Sheol as hell? It's because the wording of the King James is more interpretation than translation. And the Catholic Church had a big influence on this. And this is an important doctrine to the Catholic Church. Because you don't get people to do what you want them to do. if You can't threaten them with eternal torment. So, you're not going to find the word hell in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament of the New American Standard or the ESV or many translations. So why does the, what does the New Testament have to say? Let's, let's go there and see what it has to say about hell. Well, in the King James New Testament, the word hell is found 23 times. And there it's translated from the Hebrew word Hades 10 times. Now, you know what Hades is? It's Sheol, okay? It's the same thing. It's the New Testament version of the Sheol. It's the place of the dead. Where the dead go. Alright? It's translated from the Greek word Tartaro once, and 12 times from Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is Gehenna, okay? But the Greek is pronounced Gehenna. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right because it's easier to just say Gehenna. Since you understand that, just know it is Gehenna, I'll go with Gehenna just to make it easier for you, alright? So Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times by Yeshua, once by James. James says the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna, alright? Now Asprola said the idea of hell comes to us from the teaching of Christ. So let's look at Christ's teaching and see if it's true. He's the only one in the Gospels to use the word Gehenna that they've translated as hell. Let's look at Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, this is the first use of hell in the ESV, and again, they shouldn't have translated it this way either. Okay, they did good in, in the Old Testament, but you get to the New, and they said, wow, we've got we to have some hell around here, you know, so they just stuck it in here. It's a bad translation. But what is Yeshua saying here? He is saying, if you don't deal with your sin, you're going to be cast into Gehenna. And the word translated hell here is the Greek Gehenna. Gehenna is used 11 times in the Gospel only by Yeshua. Let me ask you something. Who is Yeshua talking to here? What? Okay, he, according to 5.1 and 5.2, he's talking to his disciples, all right? But according to 7.28 and 29, he's talking to the crowd. It says the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So Yeshua's teaching his disciples while the crowd listens in, right? So, okay, we got the disciples, we got the crowd. 
What nationality are these people? Okay, they're Israelites. They're Hebrews, right? All of them. He's in Jerusalem. He's talking to these people, okay? What did the people, the Hebrews, the Israelites that he is talking to, what was their view of Gehenna? Is that even important? This is extremely important, people. You've heard me talk over and over about audience relevance. It's a principle of hermeneutics, all right? Which seeks to discover what did the original audience, those people sitting there listening to Christ teach, what did they understand of the word Gehenna? Why? Why do we need to know that? Because he's talking to them. And see, we have to get in their mind to understand this passage. We can't just make up something and say, well, I know what hell is. It's this fiery thing that, you know, you go in the afterlife. Did they think that? See, the concern of the interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of its historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. So, let's do a little history here and see if we can understand what's in their minds. Because that, people, that is so important, all right? Gehenna began to be used as a place of human sacrifice in the days of Ahaz. Gehenna is referred to in Jeremiah 7 as the Valley of Hinnom. In this passage, people are burning their sons and their daughters to the god Moloch. That's how committed they are. If you can even fathom this, people, they're literally taking their children and offering up as burning sacrifices. There's This God had His hands out like this and they would build fires under the hands until the hands glowed red and then they'd throw their children into them. We think abortion is horrible, and it is. Okay, this is beyond horrible. Jeremiah says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares Yahweh. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name, to defile it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command nor come to mind. They're burning their sons and their daughters. He goes, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of of slaughter. This place where they're doing this is going to be a valley of slaughter, he says. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. I'm going to take this valley and fill it with dead people. And he defileth Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And no one might burn his sons and his daughters as an offering to Moloch. So Josiah wanted to do away with this practice. So he defiled the place by turning it into a garbage dump. Okay, you're using this place to worship your God, Moloch. Well, he says, let me show you what I think of your God. We're going to turn this to a garbage dump, okay? All the trash, all the refuse, all the dung from the city of Jerusalem was dumped in this valley up until the time of Christ. 
And characteristic of this place were fires that were kept burning because there were dead bodies thrown in there. So they're burning. They're burning the trash. They're burning the bodies. It's just constant fire going up. The fires were constantly there. All right? Here's a, a view of the city of Jerusalem and down, I don't know if you can even see that, but at the, the south end of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hanom, was the place that had become in the people's minds a filthy, accursed place where evil things were destroyed. Christ used this to describe the suffering and torment. This is the background of Gehenna. Here's the city of Jerusalem again, the southern end here. You see this valley? That's the Valley of Hanom. That is Gehenna just south of Jerusalem. Now get this in your mind, people. When he's talking to these Jews and he says Gehenna, they're thinking of a physical, literal place south of Jerusalem where it's a dump. Okay? So in Matthew 5, when Yeshua says your whole body will be thrown into Gehenna, every Jew knew this is the location of the garbage dump. Oh yeah, we know what that is. The Jews who didn't trust in Christ as the Messiah, he says, were going to end up with their bodies thrown into Gehenna. They're going to be burned up in this dump. And I believe he's speaking here at the destruction of Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen in AD 70. You don't trust me, you're going to be burned up. Gehenna is a proper noun. Just like Jerusalem is a proper noun. The term hell is not a translation of Gehenna. It's a theologically loaded substitution. There's no reason for it to be there. There's no, it just, again, you take your views and you translate words to push your views. Gehenna is a literal place. And listen, this is so important that you understand this. The only people ever threatened with Gehenna were Judean Jews of Yeshua's generation. The only people. So hang on to that thought. Now, in a parallel parallel text of Matthew 5.29, Yeshua says this, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into Gehenna to the unquenchable fire. They say, well, look, the word unquenchable here... That, that's, this fire is going to go on. This is talking about hell, people will say. Well, the Greek word here is asbestos. The word's only used three times in the NAS. Here, Matthew 3.12, Luke 3.17, where John the Baptist said that Yeshua would baptize with unquenchable fire. We'll look at that in a minute, but listen. Let me tell you what unquenchable fire is. It's unstoppable fire. It is a fiery destruction brought about by God, and God promised such a national judgment on Judah. So when they hear this unquenchable fire, we think this is a fire that just goes on forever. No, that's not what it's talking about. We'll look at that in a second here. All right, look at Ezekiel 20, 47 through 48. This is their Bible. The people Yeshua is talking to, this is their Bible that we're reading from now. So they understood this. Say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh. Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched. There's this unquenchable fire. 
and all faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, Yahweh, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Okay, listen to me, people. Babylon fulfilled these words in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The fire was not quenched. The destruction was unstoppable. But Jerusalem didn't burn unendingly from 586 on. It's not still burning. You can go over there and look. So when Yeshua spoke of unquenchable fire in our text, He used language that the Jewish listeners would associate with national judgments. In fact, unlike us, they'd never heard of such language used any other way. Look at Mark 9, 47 and 48. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here Yeshua says that Gehenna is a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. What's this language referring to? Well, where would we, we go to find out what it's referring to? It's not a trick question, people. We're going back to the Tanakh, right? They didn't make this stuff up, okay? Yeshua is talking to them and He's quoting from their own Scriptures. This is a quotation from Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against Me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Alright, let's compare these two. You got Mark. They're thrown into Gehenna. What is this place? It's where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Isaiah 66, where the worm doesn't die, the fire is not quenched. It's talking about God's destruction on Jerusalem, listen, in the generation when Yeshua was crucified. When Yeshua spoke about their worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, the disciples would have been familiar with these words, again, referring to national judgment. He is talking about the judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem. So the fire is not quenched, is not talking about an eternal fire that never goes out, but a fire that can't be quenched, it can't be put out until the judgment is done. It's used of the judgment on Israel in Amos 5, 5 and 6. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek Yahweh and live lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it. So this is also used of Babylon's burning of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 21, 10-14. For I have set my face against this city. Talking about Jerusalem. For harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. So the king of Babylon is going to come. He's going to burn Jerusalem. And to the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of David. Thus says Yahweh, Execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor. He's telling them, do righteousness. Him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it. If you don't obey me, if you don't start acting righteously, you're going to be judged. 
Because of your evil deeds, behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares Yahweh, who you say, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares Yahweh. I will kindle a fire in her forest. It shall devour all that is around her. Well, historically, Israel didn't heed the warning. And as a result, Jerusalem and the temple of God were burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. We see this in 2 Kings 25, 8 and 9. Now let me ask you some people, is Jerusalem burning today? Obviously not. An unquenchable fire clearly doesn't burn forever. So what does the phrase mean? A fire that can't be quenched burns until its divine purpose has been accomplished and then it goes out. Man cannot extinguish or quench the fire, but it does indeed go out when there's nothing left to burn, when it's accomplished its purpose. Once Jerusalem was destroyed by fire, what's the point of the fire keeping going? Nothing. It was unquenchable because man couldn't stop the judgment of God. So Gehenna was a place that had to be, become identified in people's minds with a filthy and accursed place where useless and evil things were destroyed. They knew when you threw stuff into Gehenna, it burned up and it was gone. Right? This is not talk, Gehenna is not talking about eternal damnation. It was a defiled place and it became the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Fires smoldered there continually. Repulsive and ugly worms ate at the garbage. And Gehenna becomes a symbol of national judgment. He's saying, look at that valley. You see the burning in that valley? I'm going to do that to you if you don't trust me. You're going to burn if you don't trust me. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now notice that Matthew doesn't use the word punishment. He doesn't use the word torment. He doesn't use the word eternal. He used destroy, which means to annihilate. Yeshua is speaking here to Jews that are living under the law of Moses, And throughout his ministry, he made continual reference to the judgment or the wrath of God that was to come upon them, Jerusalem. The unfaithful Jews, those who rejected Christ as their Messiah, would be destroyed. Listen, this historically happened, people, in A.D. 70. While those who were faithful would be spared. So he's talking about a national judgment. Yeshua didn't say here, fear him who after he has killed your body will punish your conscious soul forever in torment. He didn't say that. The Greek word used here for soul is suke. Anybody know what suke means? Okay, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word nefesh, nefesh means life. Suke means life. Often translated soul, but you got to understand, suke is life. Now, people divide this up. Well, you have, you have a spirit and you have a soul. That's not biblical, okay? We'll get into that. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. But anyway, life, suke is life. As the disciples went out, they were not to fear death at the hands of unbelieving brethren. Because all they could do was kill them, right? 
They were to fear God who could permanently extinguish their life force, their suke, by denying them the resurrection to eternal life. See, they, their hope was resurrection. And he says, you better fear the one who can not resurrect you. That's who you fear. You don't fear men. They just kill the body. But I resurrected, so don't fear them. All right? Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. We can't talk this way today because, you know, we have to be kind and gentle and nice. This is Yeshua. He's talking to the religious leaders. And he says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Gehenna. Here, the judgment of Gehenna, the national judgment of Israel, is given a time. See, because we look at a later verse, in 23.36, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, these things will come upon this generation. That's the generation he's talking to. See, the judgment of Gehenna that he had been threatening was to happen in their generation. It was to happen to the people he's preaching to. So what we have seen is that Yeshua threatened the Jews in Jerusalem that if they rejected Him, they were headed for Gehenna. They would suffer a national judgment against Jerusalem. So none of the King James uses of hell have anything to do with the fiery place of torment, listen, in the afterlife. They're talking about a fiery place of torment. They're talking about a national destruction. And when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, it was burned to the ground. So as I said earlier, the word hell should not be in your Bible. Now, the New American Standard has the word hell 13 times. ESV has it 14 times. Young's Literal has it no times. Zero. Why? Because it's literal. That's not literal. Okay? Gehenna is literal. He's talking about a place. So, what does the Bible say about hell? Nothing. Hell? No, it's not in there. There's nothing about it. It's not in the original translations of the Bible. Now, we saw the Tanakh has nothing to say about the wicked suffering after death. But what about the New Testament? All right, Gehenna speaks of national judgment. It doesn't, it's not talking about the afterlife. But what does the New Testament say about the end of the wicked? Where did the New Testament writers get their information? The Tanakh. That's their Bible. The teaching of the apostles was based on Moses and the prophets. Therefore, their writings reflect the truth found in the Tanakh, right? So let's look at Matthew 13, 11 through 12. See, Gehenna's not here, but we got fire here. So wherever you got fire, guess what you have? Hell. We're going to make it be hell. Every, every time we see a fire. John the Baptist is speaking here, and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, what's John talking about here? Is this a reference to hell? Is this him sending people to hell now? No, he's not talking about the afterlife. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
John is warning the rebellious leaders of Israel that they were going to be judged if they didn't turn to Christ. The fact was, he says, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. That's God's covenant people he's talking to. It indicates the nearness of this judgment. Now, John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of God after 400 years of silence. There had been no prophet for 400 years. The Tanakh closes with the book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi is one long, terrible impeachment of the nation Israel. It's just God saying, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to burn you to the ground. That's the burden of the word of the Lord to Malachi. Let's look at Malachi 3, 5. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers. And he goes on and lists all these. He goes, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to judge. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. That doesn't sound good. Says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, that sounds like hell, doesn't it? They're going to be burning like an oven. He's going to set them ablaze. No. He says the evildoers will be like chaff. The reference to burning like an oven is speaking of the judgment He's bringing on Jerusalem for their sins. This verse points to an approaching crisis in the history of the nation when Yahweh would inflict judgment upon His rebellious people. The day, He says, was coming. The day that shall burn like an oven. Now this period is more precisely defined as the great and terrible day of the Lord by Malachi. Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. That this day refers to a certain period and a specific event is clear. Yeshua tells us that the predicted Elijah that was to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord was who? John the Baptist. Right? Matthew eleven fourteen, He says, For if you are willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. He's speaking of John the Baptist. He says, John is the Elijah. He's the prophesied Elijah that's going to come before the destruction. So John the Baptist is there. So what should you be thinking? The judgment's coming. Now this enables us to determine the time of the event referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. It must be the time period around John and it seems clear that the allusion is to the judgment of the Jewish nation in AD 70, when the city and the temple were destroyed, and the entire fabric of Jerusalem was dissolved. That was the end of Judaism, people, AD 70. Biblical Judaism. And we have a, a group out there that says they're Jews. They don't follow the Bible. They've made up new rules to keep going. So Matthew, 11, Matthew 3, 11 and 12 is not talking about hell. It is also talking about a national judgment. Let me show you probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. It, and it's teaching on hell that nobody seems to get. For God so loved the world. By world, he doesn't mean world without except, everyone without exception. He means everyone without distinction. He loves Jews. He loves Gentiles. God loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not go to hell and burn forever. Any of your Bibles say that? Why didn't he say that there? Why did he say they perish? You think, is perishing different than burning eternally, you think? Could he have said, should not eternally be tormented in hell? 
I would have understood that. The contrast here, people, is between perish and have life, eternal life. Those who trust Christ don't perish. The Greek word for perish used here, literally of death. Death, you die, you're gone. Now, notice what Paul says in Romans 6.23, another very familiar verse. The wage of sin is eternal torture in hell. No, death. And the gift is eternal life. So the, the context of Paul's dissertation in the letter of the Romans, the death refers to the sentence given to Adam. Adam was guilty of the sin. Paul's message was that the life in Adam could result in the death, while the life of faith in Christ brings everlasting life. Again, the contrast here is death and eternal life. Not eternal torture or eternal life. The Greek scholar and New Testament translator R.F. Weymouth wrote this, My mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language than when the five or six strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses signifying destroy or destruction are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. To translate black as white is nothing to this. You see what he's saying? People are taking the strongest Greek language that means to destroy and they're making it mean something totally different. Matthew 25, 46 is a verse a lot of people have trouble with. It says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we have here a comparison between eternal punishment and eternal life. Now the word eternal here is the same in both cases. Eternal is from the Greek word ionios, which is from ion, which means existing at all times, perpetual, pertaining to an unlimited duration of time. So people argue here, and I think rightly so, if the righteous get eternal life, then the wicked get eternal punishment. I mean, that's what it says, right? Yeah, that's what it says, and that's what I mean. That's true. But what is eternal punishment? Is it a punishment that goes on and on and on? See, punishment here in the Greek word is kolossis, which Thayer says means correction, punishment, penalty. As we have seen from other scriptures, what is the punishment for not trusting Christ? It's death. Eternal punishment is death eternally. In other words, you're never going to be raised from it. You're going to go to death and you're never coming back. All right? So what the wicked get is eternal death. The penalty is eternal. It's talking about the result of the action and not the action itself. The punishment is death and death is eternal. The destruction of the wicked in the lake of fire is permanent. It's eternal. It's a punishment that cannot be reversed. The punishment of death will last forever. So these go away into eternal punishment. They die, they perish. It's eternal. The punishment, which is death, lasts forever. But the righteous, they go to eternal life. Contrast. Death and life. 1 Corinthians 1.16 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's the non-elect. They're perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And again, we have a contrast. We have people perishing. We have people being saved. 
The Bible teaches that the reward of believers is everlasting life, while the punishment of the wicked is just as the Scriptures state, it's death, which is the opposite of life. As the wicked will have no more escape from death, it's an eternal punishment. If you die without Christ, that death is an eternal death. Something you'll never come back from. He says, but to those who are called, the elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jude 1.7 Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example of, the un- of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Alright, now, of course, we notice here the punishment is eternal. It's fire that's eternal. This is a reference. Is this a reference, people, to eternal conscious torment? Well, it says it's fire, and it, it's eternal. The fire just goes on forever. Well, let me ask you here. Who or what is it that serves as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire? Okay, thank you. Sodom and Gomorrah is the example of a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so let me ask you this. Are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? No, but it says the fire is eternal. Because its destruction is eternal. They were burned up and they're done. But it doesn't change. They're not coming back from that. It is eternal punishment. It is a fire that burned them and they're, always, and they're done. It's not a, it doesn't mean perpetual to keep on going and going. It means it consumes. It destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They burned up and they were no more. The fire is not still going. But the judgment is permanent. Let's go to Revelation 14, 10-11. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, those worshiping of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, I'll give you, at first glance, this passage seems to confirm the traditional idea of seething, sulfurous, hellfire, merciless, eternal, tormenting, helpless, immortal souls forever. But notice the setting forth in the passage. Again, the context is so important. In the context, we see these events described as occurring in Jerusalem. This is all, the, the book of Revelation is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. And these are talking about the events surrounding that disaster that occurred either immediately at or right before Christ's return. This is not hell. This is not the afterlife. This warning describes the punishment that will befall all of Jerusalem's inhabitants who worship the beast in His image whoever receives the mark of His name. This is another passage that is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, well, what about the lake of fire? I mean, we get to Revelation 20, 14 and 15, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. What do you mean second death? Because you die a physical death. Okay? 
those who have not trusted Christ were resurrected and thrown into the lake of fire at the time of judgment. Now, I believe AT&T, at this time, okay, I'm learning, I'm trying to figure all this out, that the lake of fire is a sign or symbol of the fiery judgment that was about to take place in Jerusalem. This is picturing Jerusalem's destruction. And I think this is a symbol of Gehenna. Gehenna is analogous to the lake of fire. It's a picture of this constant burning, what's going to happen to the city. It is all speaking of national judgment of Israel. Peter writes at that same time, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works in it shall be burned up. This happened to Jerusalem, people. It was burned to the ground. But it doesn't mean that God will torment the ungodly forever. There is simply no biblical basis for that teaching. You say, where did that teaching come from? I think the church's view of hell came from Dante's Inferno, not from the Bible. And we'll talk about how that happened in the weeks to come. All right, Translating the terms Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, or Tartarus in a manner that denotes a place of eternal punishment is a perversion of God's Word. It's not being just. It's not using those terms any way, shape, or form the way they should be used. Sheol and Hades is the grave, the place of the dead. No punishment there. No suffering there. Tartarus is a place where spirits were put. Gehenna was the city dump. Now, according to Barnhart, Concise Dictionary of Etymology, the word hell was adopted into our vocabulary as a way of introducing the pagan concept of hell into Christian theology, which it did quite successfully. So we have a concept. How can we make this Christian? Well, there's words about fire in the Bible. Let's put these things together and make it sound like this. Listen, as with all other pagan concepts, hell must be predetermined before coming to the Scriptures. Because if you're reading through the Tanakh, you'll never get any idea of this torture hell. You get to the New Testament, you see this fire, you see this burning. But it's always Yeshua talking to local Jews about a disaster that is to come upon them, and it's using the very same language of national judgments that they're familiar with. There's no evidence to support a place of eternal torment in the Bible. Now, as always, I'm asking you, you don't accept what I'm telling you. I'm asking you, you don't reject what I'm telling you. I'm asking that you be a Berean and you go and study it. Is this so? Is this true? Is it right? Because that's your job. I don't want to ever hear anybody say, well, I don't believe in hell because David said. No, that's a wrong answer. Okay? <laughs> you've got to study this. You've got to know what the Bible says for yourself. So when you come to a, faith, a belief in this, you'll say, this is based on my study. This is what I see. Now, again, I told you at the beginning, you can't do a study in hell without dealing with Luke 16. Everybody know what Luke 16 is? Lazarus and the rich man. And he is tormented in this flame. 
We're going to look at that next week, okay? What is he talking? I mean, that you read that, Luke 16, beginning of verse 19 following, that sounds like hell. So you read that and you're like, well, it sure sounds like hell to me. Okay, we'll look at that. And we'll see what it really is talking about. Here's one thing I want you to do, though, as you look at that this week. You're going to do that. It's your homework. Luke 16. Luke 16 is a parable. What is the one number one rule of parabolic interpretation? Don't make a parable walk on all fours. What that means is every detail in the parable doesn't mean something. It's a story meant to give you a central point. So if you say, well, this here is that, and that there is this, and he puts spit on his tongue, that means, no, it's just, what is he trying to say? What's the message he's saying in this parable? Secondly, we're going to look at the immortality of the soul. Because this is where hell came from. Okay? It's a Greek concept. The Greeks believed, starting with back as far as the Egyptians, that the soul was immortal. So... When you die, guess what? You go to heaven or someplace else because you're immortal. Does the Bible teach that? What did Christ give to those who trusted Him? Immortality. Eternal life. Eternal life is a gift that people without Christ don't have. And when people without Christ die, they're gone. This whole idea that we have that the soul is immortal is Greek. It is not Hebrew, and it is not biblical. And we'll talk about that. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You for today. Lord, I pray. I pray that Your people would be Bereans. Lord, I don't want anybody accepting what I say because I say it. I want them studying. Father, may we all be Bereans and dig into this and search to see what the truth of the Word of God is. Lord, thank You, Father for Your Word. I thank You that we have the opportunity today with so much resources at hand to dig, to study the languages, to study the culture, to study the history, to find out actually what is being said. Give us hearts to do that, Lord, that we may honor You by our lives. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Hmm? <laughs> well, if you want to ask a question that might help, and listen to me, those of you who are watching online, those of you here, you say, well, what about this? Text me or email me so I can deal with any questions that you might have in the coming weeks. But like I said, next week, Luke 16, the following week after that, the immortality of the soul. We're going to dig into this stuff because this is important stuff. All right? Because you can't have hell unless you have immortality of the soul. Dan. We're going to lunch in a minute, so wait. Getting hungry. Anyway, uh, what I'm trying to say is uh, God is a merciful God, okay? And uh, if He didn't choose you, and I'm talking the totality of God, and, and that's one of His attributes, okay? Now, this makes sense to me what you're saying, because why... If I wasn't his, he didn't choose me, because he's got to choose you, otherwise you're not coming. Right. Why would he eternally torment me, being a merciful God, if he didn't choose me? Okay. I, I agree, and there's plenty of theologians 
that hold that view. They say hell, meaning the traditional view of hell, is against the nature of God. Now let me just say, I don't agree with that. Okay, I don't agree with that because I think if God wants to burn people forever, then He is a righteous God. He is a God of wrath. We look at the attributes of God and we focus on what? God is love. Well, that's not His only attribute, people. He is also a God of wrath, a God of justice. And you have sinned, and I think we deserve to go to a burning place and suffer forever. But So I don't think it has anything to do with the nature of God. I think it has to do with what He taught us. What is the reality of it? And if there was a place of eternal torment, I think He would have taught us about that. He would have warned us. So many people use hell as a missionary endeavor. If you don't trust Christ, you're going to hell. Okay, I'll trust Him. I don't want to go there. People, that's not right. Okay, that's not it at all. You die. You want to live eternally? It's a gift from God. You can go on. We act like death is nothing. I mean, people in this life, they fight tooth and nail to keep from dying, right? Because it's important. Life is important. Well, death is eternal if you don't know Christ. Anybody else? You got a question back there? What are you trying to get my attention to? Gary? I don't know. I got too many I would encourage you to read Luke 16, 19 through following there, and the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Because it, again, it's, you can't talk about hell without going there. All right? Because everybody thinks that's a picture of hell. All right? And we'll see. We'll see. The question is, do I believe that Matthew 25.41 is talking about hell? Gehenna. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, and eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Yeah, I think it's a judgment. But I, I think there's a, the judgment is different for the devil and his angels. Okay? And here's the deal. Here's why I think that. They are eternal. Okay? They're immortal. All right, so I think that's a different judgment for the devil and his angels and than people. When people are cast into the fire, they burn up and they're gone. Now, when you think about you know, hell, some people think it's actually literal. And there's a literal place when you will be thrown in this fire. Well, guess what? If you got thrown into a fire, how long would you last? When they want to get rid of people, instead of burying them, what do they do? They burn them. They, they're ashes and they're gone. Well, so then you have to have a special... Oh, man, I've read some stories of people, traditional views. They say that you know, your body becomes... Uh, like, hell will burn your arm off and your legs off, but you'll regrow new ones, and it'll just keep burning you. And I'm like, there's some imagination here, you know, to think that you know, this is going to happen for eternity. It's a horrible thought. And, you know, listen, let me just say this. I don't have a dog in the fight here. I'm not going there. I don't care if it's a place or not. I'm not going there, okay? I have eternal life. I've trusted in Christ. And, you know, I think it's, it sounds like an awful place. But if people go there, if God sends people there, that's His business, okay? But I just can't find anything in Scripture to verify it. So I'm not one where the other. It's like I don't, one where the other, it doesn't matter to me, you know? I'm not going there. Hopefully you're not going there, okay? 